podcasting from Chico, California, tucked in between some of Northern California's best freshwater fisheries. This is the Barbless Podcast, a podcast about NorCal fly fishing, guiding, fisheries management, and sustainability. If you have ideas or any questions for the show, leave the guys a voice message on the Barbless Podcast hotline, area code 530-636-2523. Also check out http colon slash slash podcast.barbless.co, where you can download past episodes and show notes. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at barbless.co and connect with them on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash barbless.co. Here's your hosts, Chad Alderson and Nick Hanna. Fish on. Hey, what's up, everybody? Um, before we get this episode going, we've got a uh, special announcement for you. Uh, this weekend, um, that will be April 21st, 2018, from 1 to 3 p.m., the uh, Big Chico Creek Ecological Reserve is hosting that open house that we talked about in episode 36, um, Big Chico Creek Ecological Reserve with Eli Goodso. So that event is happening this weekend. You guys should go check it out. It, uh, what they're saying is it's family friendly. You can take the kiddos. They're going to have um, a bunch of different things, demonstrations. There'll be staff on hand to, to do all that. Um, there's going to be short hikes for the kids, snacks. Um, they're going to show talk about uh, grassland restoration, um, wildflowers, and ID and bugs. So it sounds pretty fun, and I'll give a good uh, you know introduction into the BCC. E-R. Is that how you say it? Yeah. If um, you haven't been there before. So go check it out. That um, You can get more information on the Chico State website, which is csuchico.edu forward slash B-C-C-E-R. Okay. And um, the next thing, a couple more, just a couple more quick announcements. We've got the newsletter going, so that's been going for the last couple months. You can sign up for that at podcast.barbless.co. All the way at the bottom in the footer, just scroll down, you'll see the uh, sign-up form. And last but not least, we're getting really close to launching uh, a private beta of a Flows app that will give you guys uh, you know, water, water information, cubic feet per second, and a bunch of other cool stuff in a whole new uh, package that's optimized for iPhone 10s, all the latest stuff, Android, you name it. Um, if you want to get on that private beta, um, go to podcast.barbless.co forward slash beta, sign up there. And as soon as we're ready, which will be very soon, uh, you'll get an invite link. Okay, that's it. So enjoy this week's episode. Oh, am I, oh, start? it's am I starting? Yeah, I'm, I don't feel good. Dude. <laughs> hey, welcome everybody to another episode of the Barbless Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Hanna. I'm here with uh, Chad Alderson. Chad, are you, how you feeling, buddy? Um, I got the whooping cough or something. The, the whooping cough. <laughs> I'm not feeling too good. I, I think I've been sick like the last three Some, episodes. You, know, you need a quick fishing in that cold weather. Trout fishing know, in Truckee, yeah. is, it'll be better when it's springtime. That's what I hear. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for uh, joining us today. We're here with a pretty awesome uh, guest, Dr. Carrie Monahan. Did I say that? Yeah, say perfectly. That right? mm -hmm. Thanks for coming on the show, Carrie. Absolutely. So Carrie has a very unique and interesting background. She is the science director um, at, I'm sorry. At the Sierra Fund. At the Sierra Fund, thank you. You're Earned welcome. her PhD in uh, forest resources and hydrology in 2004 from the University of Washington. Um, so you teach, you're a professor at Chico State. Adjunct professor. Yep. What is that? Adjunct professor, it's a, it's an affiliation with the University of the Department. And then okay. on top of that, I'm a lecturer, so I get to teach classes. Gotcha. As they need me. But you don't, you, you don't get tenure yet. Right. No, it's, that's right. That's probably it's good. Like, keep you hungry and keep you on point. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Um, so uh, the research efforts include sediment and mercury loading, storm flows, erosion, and uh, deposition rates, shallow groundwater well, uh, redox conditions, uh, and, and identification of mercury and other heavy metal contamination sources. So basically what's going to poison us and the fish? 
Yeah, I like to scope it a little bit differently than that. (laughs) (laughs) It's broadly put as, what are the impacts of the California gold rush? Yes. Yes. Uh, That's what I was going to ask. So I know that there's mercury's naturally occurring, but it gets kind of teased out when stuff like, you know, Hydro, uh, hydro mining happens and things like that. You know, yeah. this is a really great place to start. So mercury is naturally occurring in the coast range. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where it was mined. But it was brought over to the Sierra Nevada where uh, it was used in gold mining, both hard rock and hydraulic mining. And it's used because mercury forms this amalgam with gold that makes it heavier. Yep. So they use it to separate. It he- it settles out and then they can separate it by volatilizing uh, off the mercury. So whoa. all the mercury in the Sierra Nevada, which is estimated to be about 26 million pounds, was brought over during the California gold rush from our coast range. It's just a whoa. really unique history in the state I of California. I did not know that. I just thought it was in the rocks. Right, and you'd be right if you were from the coast range. It's in the rocks. It's in Cinnabar. It's naturally occurring in Cinnabar, but it was mined there, huh. brought over to the Sierra Nevadas, and used. And it, it was brought over in liquid elemental form in the, these seventy-six pound flasks, and then it was literally dumped um, into sluice boxes, for example, at hydraulic mine sites, <laughs> so that it would bind to the fine grain gold. And the mercury was expensive, so the miners were smart about recycling it. They captured mm-hmm. it, reused it, and captured it, and reused it. But there was loss to the environment. So 10 to 13 million pounds was lost to the environment, and it's still entrained in those river gravels today. Um, and therefore, it's still affecting our aquatic ecosystems and the people who live there. So this stuff doesn't really like break down over time, like say an isotope, nuclear isotope that does. That was going to be it's my question. Like- Let's say like cyanide heap leaching. You've probably heard of that um, no. technology for getting gold out. Mm-hmm. That has a 50-year half-life. So if, actually, cyanide sounds so scary and terrible, but in 50 years, it degrades to benign products and it's no longer an issue to the environment so what's the half-life of mercury it's a good question i can't answer that so no one knows but it's still it's a long so it's more than like a nuclear it's gonna stay there and it what happens is the liquid elemental form or inorganic form is not the form that's the most poisonous to anyone we could and they did have it as a cure-all at times where you could take a full spoonful of that and it just goes right through your body. So that stuff like you would find in a in a thermometer is what you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. The, the forms of mercury that are really dangerous are the methylated form or the volatilized form. So mercury from a thermometer, if it breaks in a room and it start, it will evaporate, it will turn into its vapor form at room temperature. That's a very dangerous exposure that can kill you. The other form that's really dangerous is methylmercury, and that's the form that you would find in fish tissue. And then when people eat that, it's a neurotoxin that crosses the blood-brain barrier and can lead to permanent neurological developmental delays in developing fetuses and developing brains of children. So you're talking about biomagnification and bioaccumulation? Actually, those are processes that happen in the food chain themselves. Okay. So if you have a really, really small amount of inorganic mercury um, in a reservoir or in a stream or in a river, it um, once it's incorporated into the food chain, it both biomagnifies and bioaccumulates. So it, it biomagnifies with every trophic step, and it bioaccumulates in that individual fish. So the fish that have the highest levels of mercury contamination are the, are predators. the top predators right. because they so both live a long time. And they eat lots of little fish. De- define a, tro- a tropic step for me. Is that just something eats something else? Yeah, that's something okay. eats something else. So okay. there's the bugs, and then there's the small fish, and then there's okay. the big fish. So why does it why does it multiply as it goes up the food chain? If it starts out, if it's a unit of one, how does it go to a unit of one point two or something? In if fact, it 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 magnifies by like ten thousand fold from that those first bottom food chain steps, and it has to do with the um, the rates of food chain transfer and things. I'm totally not prepared to talk to you about <laughs> at all. It's a really fascinating step. So. The small things have to eat lots of other small That's things. That's why stripers have the most mercury content. Stripers have the most mercury content because they are pisciferous. They eat other fish and they live for oh, a long time. So mm-hmm. because the top predators eat lots of the smaller fish, that's biomagnification okay, that you can it. understand at it, a higher level. Yeah, and it's not that it's taking one one unit and making 1.2. It's just it's taking many of one yes. unit. Correct. Yeah. Absorbing that into its body. The next tropic step eats all that plus a bunch of theirs. You got it. And it becomes like a multiplier effect all the way through the chain. You got it. Okay. So the top predatory Ooh. fish have high levels of methylmercury in them. And that's a problem yeah, for people who might eat them. Wow. And yeah. us being at the very top of that food chain. 
Yes, us being at the very top of that food chain. <laughs> we we so, we went right into it and missed our our, our first question of yeah, if you've been fishing lately. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I want to go fishing after that. Yeah, so no. I eat tuna or I eat sushi like once a week. Should I be concerned? Let's see. You're not a pregnant woman, so okay, you're check. um not one of the sensitive population in that regard, nor are you a developing fetus. So you're good on both of those counts. Um, so you're probably fine. But you're right to bring up that commercially bought fish also has mercury in it. Mm -hmm. And if we eat tuna and if we eat shark or swordfish or any of the other top predatory fish, we are exposing ourselves to mercury. And so um, women who Mm. might become pregnant, they call that the age of 18 to 45. That and children are our sensitive populations. And those are the ones that need to watch how much mercury they're being exposed to via fish consumption, whether it's sport fish or um, commercially bought fish. That's good to know. It hmm. is. All right. So now let's do it. Let's, sorry. I just, we just dove right into it, man. It's such a good topic. Have you been fishing lately? <laughs> so I'm going to answer this in the most geeky science way possible. I had a, a crew out fishing for me on February 20th and they are catching fish so that we can send them off to a trace metal mercury lab and be analyzed for mercury concentrations. And what fishery? Um, they were fishing at Scott Flat that day. Scott's Where, Flat is a reservoir at? on Deer Creek. And they were catching uh, three more rainbow trout. So in order for um, a fish advisory to be issued by the Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment, they need a certain number of fish to determine whether or not they're high enough to warrant a fish consumption advisory. So what's the sample size target for that? It depends on the range of variation, but it's about 9 to 16 fish of the same size class and the same species from any one water body. And when we started this work, Mm. we realized that there was a fair number of places that had incomplete fish consumption advisories. So like a great example, Rollins Reservoir, the top impoundment on the Bear River, um, had a fish advisory for catfish. It basically said, do not eat catfish. What about all the other species? Are they they safe to consume? Mm -hmm. Or do the statisticians at the Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment just not have enough data? And the answer was the latter. They just needed more More fish to be able to issue this um, within the 95% confidence interval. So we went out and caught them, those fish. I mean, their their problem was that they... um, it was very expensive to go out and catch the fish, the labor that it took. And that's where the Sierra Fund is a nonprofit in Nevada City with volunteers who are lo- would love to go fishing, saw this as an opportunity of a real critical data gap we could fill. Yeah. We're already nearby. We can handle trace metal mercury uh, sampling. And we basically wrote a grant to get money to uh, have a EPA certified lab process those fish and give us the methyl mercury data. And we did that all under a sampling and analysis plan that OEHA approved. Um, so it wasn't just going out to catch the fish, though that was the fun part. Right. So, uh, you know, you said you guys typically do like 15 to 20 fish to get a, a statistically significant number around 95 um, percent. Yeah. So I was at eBay for several years and on the search front end team, and we always needed like a thousand minimum of any sample that we were trying to do to get a number similar. So how how are you guys able to, I don't understand like. Well, you're asking a really important question yeah. um, and the right yeah. answer would, would be given to you by a toxicologist at OEHA. But in general, the range of variability around what you're sampling will determine what kind of standard deviation you have okay. from the mean. So the so variability if, is very, very small. The variability is relatively small so right. that you can be within the 95% confidence interval for most of these uh, species if you catch 9 to 16 okay. fish. Now, if you're studying people... Then you have to drill down to a cohort if you're going right. to get a right. if you're going to get a sample size that's small. And that's okay. why I don't I like it. to study people. They're very complicated. Okay. They make decisions for that all sorts sense. of reasons. They have a million different things affecting them. It's very difficult to say that people do anything for certain within a ninety-five percent confidence interval. That's my opinion. With, with a thousand, you can. Yeah, with a thousand yeah. for some things, I bet that's yeah. true. So was that the only place that you did this? No, no, we got this um, Department of Water Resources funded grant through the Kasumnas American Bear Yuba Integrated Regional Watershed Management Group. How the hell do you remember all those acronyms? It's the CABI IRWIMP. Sorry, (laughs) I say them a lot. That's why. Um, And we caught fish from five different reservoirs. 
and a bunch of different uh, stream rivers and lengths all to complete fish consumption advisories um, if warranted. So uh, there is a general fish consumption advisory that OEHA did issue for the Sierra Nevada for all st streams and rivers and lakes and reservoirs that don't have a site specific. And in general, the guiding principles are that um, you can eat more trout than bass in for those reasons of bioaccumulation mm -hmm. and biomagnification that we talked about. Mm -hmm. The other guiding principle is that sensitive populations, the women of childbearing age and children, should be more cautious and eat less than men or women over 45. Barbless is all about catch and release. Yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great thing. You know, I'll tell you a couple of stories about that. When we started this work, um, we talked to the Gulf Country Fly Fisher Club mm -hmm. and asked them if they thought this was relevant or interesting. And from, from their perspective, people knew that the streams and rivers and um, lakes were contaminated right. with mercury and that no one was eating the fish. And then we did this survey um, to talk to fishermen who were out fishing and found out actually, no, there's quite a, a large number of people who are catching fish for sustenance. Mm. And that that's mm. just a key part of the rural lifestyle that people are choosing to live or the right. cultural lifestyle that people are choosing to live. And that made getting this information about fish consumption around mercury impaired water bodies so important. I also grew up fly fishing, you know, with barbless hooks on the wild and scenic McKinsey River and didn't have an affinity towards um, bait fishing. I've never caught a bass before this project, mm -hmm. never eaten a bass. Um, so for me too, it was something that I was like, is this really going on? Absolutely, it's mm. going on. Uh, we've talked to more than, well, almost 400 people Um now with this survey and what we do is we ask them um, this is all through the sierra fund yeah it's all through the sierra fund and we ask them if they are going to eat what they catch today that's how we start it and then we ask them if they have time for a 20-minute survey <laughs> <laughs> we ask them about if what they've eaten in the previous 30 days um, and from that estimate of what they ate in the previous 30 days we can calculate their methylmercury exposure level this was a survey developed by mm. department of public health and uh, uc davis dr fraser Schrilling, that we just adopted he was using it in the bay delta and we adopted it to the sierra nevada and i say that because it's important that you use a, you know a tested survey right. that then you have comparable data set so out of all the reservoirs, lakes, and other areas that you've tested, which is the dirtiest? It's a really loaded question. I will answer it in this way. Okay. Um, the Yuba and Bear River watersheds were the most heavily impacted by Yuba hydraulic. Totally makes sense, yeah. Most heavily impacted by hydraulic mining. And so those reservoirs have the highest concentrations of um, mercury, methylmercury and fish. And you can look at some wonderful publications done by USGS, Dr. Charlie Alpers and Jason May that show that fish concentrations on the Bear River system in particular are especially high in methylmercury. So there's a trout in the Yuba. And there's a tuna in the ocean. Which one do you think is going to have more mercury? Oh, no doubt the tr the tuna. No doubt. Okay. No doubt. That's good to know. Yeah. The trout are generally considered a safe or good fish right. um, choice, healthy fish option. And the people who talk about this all of the time are always quick to tell you the benefits of eating fish okay. and the omega-3s and how important that is. And how about a bass and a tuna? The tuna is going to be higher. Okay. Yeah. Well. Even the even the stuff that's like you that's know basically guess. sustainably farmed comes into sushi is going to have higher content. Well, it's right in the if you look at the you know fishing game regs, they'll go right into talking about striped bass and how those they're the worst having the the worst mercury content per ounce. But um, I'm sure tuna, yeah, I'm sure tuna it's got to be the same. So I mean, it's interesting to talk about methylmercury levels in different species for these reasons, but we almost always go to what then affects people. Mm -hmm. And what we know very little about is what's affecting the wildlife that mm -hmm. eat these fish. So the birds that yeah, eat the, the fish. Ospreys the ospreys and bald eagles. Yeah. That's right. <coughs> the otters. The otters, yeah. So um, I don't think it's hurting them. They're everywhere. I think they, <laughs> they thrive on that stuff. It's like GH for them or something. Have you guys heard about the crazy otter attacks, though? Oh, yeah. No, I haven't. So you, one of one of them happened. We can digress. This is interesting. You no, know, there was a crazy otter attack, and this woman, you know, reported it to Fish and Wildlife, and I followed up on it on and the Philbrook Lake. 
I, the I don't remember the water body actually, mm-hmm. but point is I followed up and they did test it for mercury because I thought, you know, Mad Hatter's disease by the miners is mercury poisoning from uh. volatilized mercury in that closed environment. So it can lead to these crazy behavioral problems. Anyhow, interesting. not a great ending because, well, we still don't know why the otter was crazy. It wasn't because of mercury. Most of the time it's defending its babies. Yeah, that's probably right. Yeah, they've been, they've, they've had a, we've had a couple of local attacks and there was one up on Philbrook that, and it was the spring and most of them are in the spring when I hear about them, but yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I'm packing <laughs> next time I go out, man. Otters are, otters are crazy. So, so tell us a little bit about the Sierra Fund. Sure. The Sierra Fund's a nonprofit in Nevada City. Our mission is to restore and protect uh, the ecosystem resiliency of the communities and natural resources of the Sierra. So though we're based in Nevada City, our mission is Mm -hmm. Sierra-wide. And for the last uh, 10 years, we've focused on the impacts of the California gold rush on the communities and ecosystems of the Sierra Nevada, primarily this issue having to do with mercury, legacy mercury contamination, but other resource extraction issues as well. So um, the state of our forests. Uh, They were largely logged in order to um, keep the mining industry going. And so we have a lot of, and then, and then fire suppression followed that. So we have a lot of single stand age and wildfires um, uh, as a result of that. Meadows from how, how overgrazing has impacted a lot of the meadows in the system and also uh, fish passage. So where fish are able to get to and not able to get to is also a result of the California gold rush. Inglebright is a debris control dam that was built to hold back hydraulic mining debris so that hydraulic mining so that hydraulic mining could resume after the war. It didn't resume, but that's why that dam was built in the first that's place. That's why that dam was built in the first place. So is the bottom just full of uh, branches and big tree trunks and stuff all of the reservoirs are filling up with sediment and they're filling up with mercury contaminated sediment this is one of the main issues that they're working on and to when they want to remove a dam what are they going to be the impacts environmentally Uh. and how do you take that sediment out and for a long time this was thought to be kind of a deal breaker like ah it's contaminated we can't do anything but there's a lot of gold at the bottom of these that you have access to we've developed a couple of these projects and there there's not only gold from these locations there's also also sellable aggregate so if you talk to mining engineers they're like it's no problem to get that stuff out to do it without stirring up any mercury and to sell that sand and gravel so it's a matter so it's of getting... kind of like fracking for for dams almost. <laughs> like they figured out a way to take, you know, what, I love what's your face. A, a resource that You're they thought me. was done and squeeze even more money out of it. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm like, just saying they, of course, figured a way out. I'm just gonna be dead silent on that one. I, that wasn't a plug for fracking. <laughs> because this is way better than something like that. This okay. is a, a potential multi-benefits project where you restore water storage space behind these reservoirs. Mm-hmm. You potentially restore volitional fish passage by being able to lower the reservoirs and create fish Ladders passage where and, there yeah. isn't fish passage. You have sellable aggregate and sand, and you have a very special kind of gold. You have gold that came from an environmental cleanup project. Mm-hmm. Californians love these special products. We don't just want diamonds. We want conflict-free diamonds. We don't just want gold. We want gold that came from restoring volitional fish passage to the Yuba River. I like it. I like it too. Sign and no up. earthquakes. And no earthquakes. It sounds like yeah. it's, a, it's a go. It's a go in so many ways conceptually, and I think that um, we'll be working very hard in the next five to ten years to make this an actuality on a couple of different projects. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, it's fun. So increasing water storage by taking all that sediment and things out. Yeah, right now, and this isn't talked about near enough, that sediment is filling up the right, reservoir. So that right. doing nothing means that your reservoir is going to fill up. You're just kicking the can. It's not going to hold any water. Do all anything. of these are man-made facilities that require maintenance and mm-hmm. won't last forever. But I thought we were talking about getting rid of it entirely. That's my preference. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. But if you do and you've got all this, you've got sediment that's got by just a bunch of uh, mercury in there too you have to you're still gonna have to pull that out before you pull the wall down absolutely the whole blow and go thing that can happen with certain reservoir removals that's not going to happen here in the yuba bear system um really that sediment behind the reservoir has to be dealt with by getting the mercury 
contaminated sediment out of the aquatic environment, out of the 100-year floodplain. I'll tell you something really interesting. If you test that sediment, it's very low levels of mercury. I was going to say, it's got to be rich. It's very, very low if you look at it with sediment standards. If you stir it up and make cloudy water, now you have very high levels of mercury in water. So it really depends if you're talking about water regulation or sediment regulation called chisels. And um, what you mean by high and low changes completely. And it all has to do with that food chain aspect and what really matters at what gets into the food chain. And that has to do with whether or not it's in the water column or in the set. Yeah. I imagine, you know, if there's all this, there's hydro mining going on for, you know, years or decades that that sediment gets deposited kind of like a fossil record, right? So there's going to be there's going to be periods in that timeline where there's there's more intense mining happening, therefore there's more mercury going in the system. Where as you go up through that those layers, there's going to be certain layers that actually maybe have more dense mercury content than the layers above or below it. Is there that is, there, accurate? That's pretty damn accurate. There is stratigraphic layering in these lenses. That's the word I was trying to think. And of, USGS has done a great job of characterizing the deposit behind Inglebright into these different layers. But mm. I'll tell you, your conceptual thinking there makes it sound like there isn't still mercury contaminated sediment coming downstream. And mm. unfortunately, that's not the case. So the studies I've been doing wow. at Malakoff Diggins for the last since 2011. Um, have shown that particulate-bound mercury, so mercury associated with fine silts and clays in particular, is still coming out of these hydraulic mining pits every time it rains. Mm -hmm. And then it gets deposited somewhere. It could be along the river channel. It could be all the way down at the reservoir. And that's where mercury then can methylate and get incorporated into the aquatic food chain. So these these scars on our landscape from hydraulic mining are still present. They've never been remediated. And they're in highly erosive environments where hard rainstorms are still eroding that material and it's still coming downstream. So we have this legacy of mercury to live with for a long time. And I think that cleaning it out of the reservoir is a really important piece of strategy. To it's clean a first it up. step, but it's not the it's not the end all be all. Yeah. You've got to have some sort You've of got to clean up the mines too. So I mean, when you see turbidity or you see mud, you don't see no fishing. You see mercury coming yes, down the river, huh? That's mm. right. So um, I had a chance to talk to Dr. Peter Moyle briefly about this at one point, and he says it's not the mercury that's harming the fish; it's the suspended silts and clays in the water column that's hurting the fish. And that makes sense, right? It's the, the bugs, the, the fish are eating the bugs. It's just mm-hmm. working its way. Yeah. Correct. It's when that mercury lands somewhere, it's no longer turbid, that then it can methylate and get into the fish tissue. But we don't have any studies that say that mercury in fish is harming the fish. And it might just be because we're not studying what, them correctly yet. I mean, when, I don't mean to say. You, uh, and you may have already covered this, but um, when you say methylate, what, what's, what's chemically, chemistry-wise, what's happening? Yeah. So a methyl group is CH3. And it's a very um, biologically available grouping on um, any compound, and it can be incorporated in a number of different ways. My understanding is that it can associate with sulfur in particular and cross the blood-brain barrier in that form. It's a pretty poor explanation, um, honestly. Uh, What's happening at the bottom of the food chain is sulfur-reducing and iron-reducing bacteria are methylating mercury as part of their metabolic processes. So like plants photosynthesize, these bacteria will methylate um, electron donors in their environment and in so doing move an electron chain in order to metabolize. So in in kind of like layman's terms, if if I'm ordering mercury from Amazon, um, the methylation process is kind of like UPS when they deliver it to my door. <laughs> it's it's just basically transporting it from something I can't get to to now I, it's right at my door. It's coming in. I don't know. You mentioned Malakoff Diggings. Sh- what is that? <laughs> Let's just skip my analogy. I couldn't, I couldn't go with you there. That. I'm really sorry. <laughs> sorry. What is Malakoff Diggins? Malakoff Diggins is um, probably once the world's largest hydraulic mine site. So it's where hydraulic mining was first developed. Um, And it is today a beloved state park. It's part of the Malakoff Diggins Historic State Park. And um, groups of school children go there to learn about California gold rush days. Um, It's an amazing place. If you go there, it looks like Bryce Canyon. You Mm kind of have this, oh, my God what happened here feeling because it's such an, a, a visually impressive pit with all of these amazing uh, cliff walls. 
Where they literally took cannons and shot water at them. But they literally took cannons and shot water and excavated that entire pit using pressure washing technology that they um, rigged up in an ingenious way to drop the water down and shoot it at. And then when they created this slurry of material, they've shunted it into these sluice boxes Mm -hmm. that they, that's where they applied the mercury. And then they created a tunnel system to get that material off site so they could keep going, right? If you start pressure washing away the hillside, you're standing in muck pretty quick. So they made this very impressive, it's called the North Bloomfield Tunnel. um, And it's, it's about 9,000 feet long. um, And uh, it goes out to Humbug Creek and it was used to convey material away from that pit. Um, the first 2,000 feet of that tunnel was actually used as a mercury sluice. So there's also mercury in that tunnel. I know, and that's just one hydraulic mine site. And so one of the things we wanted to know right away is where are these hydraulic mines? Where are they all? Weaverville. Yeah, you know. And it, we don't even have a comprehensive inventory. Yeah, I, I learned about I, I learned about this, you know, how that mining practice was so bad on the environment when I was a little kid, right? And then, you know, we if you take various, you know, what do they call them when you the the road show things when they take the kids on the bus field trips yeah thank you field trips <laughs> yeah. but mercury never came up once it didn't even no it, it, yeah I, I it, no it came up but it, it wasn't it well, was not, more i went to princeton so you know <laughs> <laughs> well you're not, and not the one that's the uh the, the, the harvard <laughs> yeah. oh you're um, on to something there so we've actually created these um lessons for teachers who want to teach california gold rush history with this component of mercury incorporated into it um, and we have those lessons. We're in the middle of developing them, and we, we want teachers who want to test them um, so we can make sure they're useful and don't have major flaws. Um, but that is something that is needed in our curriculum. Absolutely. But, but I also want to guess that maybe the genocide that took place um, as a result of the California gold rush also wasn't covered in <laughs> fourth grade true. curriculum. So yeah. it's kind of like when are these things appropriate to cover for children? And if I could change one thing right now about our education system, I think I'd teach chemistry sooner because if you have an informed population around the chemistry how how chemicals affect us from our environment i think we'd be a lot more conscientious about the things that we eat and Mm -hmm. the things that we dispose of yeah you know i mean to build on that i think education in general kind of needs to be redone in terms of how you even teach chemistry because there's there's the practical chemistry that we just talked about, but then there's the chemistry that will just make your eyes roll back in the head unless you're the 1.001% of the population that'll be a chemist someday. But that was maybe you know? true for learning math or spelling as well. Yeah, I think I, the concepts around chemistry Absolutely. can be taught at the you know the right level, just like yeah. math can be taught at the right level early on. And yeah. it shouldn't be this thing that's like, surprise, you're in high school, here's this whole nother language right. that you're going to need for the rest of your life if you do anything related to science. So, <laughs> it's, and it's a language, it's complicated, right. and it's involved. So, But we do run across this ability to understand chemistry well enough to understand the impacts that we're talking about a fair amount. Uh, and it is a difficult it is a difficult process. So you answered a little bit about what the uh, Sierra Fund is, Carrie. What, um, as a science director, how, how much of your work is focused on research as opposed to outreach and policy? Yeah, this, that's a really good question. Um, I mainly get to do the science part, and we have other experts on mm-hmm. policy and on outreach. So my boss, Izzy Martin, um, is our policy expert. But they are interrelated in that I don't just take on any scientifically interesting project and run with it. I take on scientific projects that have direct links to uh, meaningful uh, policy and um, policy decisions that need to be made or meaningful outreach components that need to be said. And I think Mercury is a really great example of that. Uh, when we started our work at Malakoff Diggins, uh, people really thought that there wasn't still mercury coming out of these hydraulic mine sites, that it had all washed down years before and was all in the Bay Delta now. And that was a very oversimplified conceptual model of what was going on. Well, why did it matter that we learned what we did at Malakoff Diggins? And, and very directly, how did that affect our work with suction dredge mining? Once we learned the form that mercury was traveling in and 
So we call that the transport and the fate of that mercury when it lands and becomes methylated. We realized that we needed to get engaged in the suction dredging uh, issues that were going on in our state. And this is where recreational miners were using underwater vacuums mm-hmm. to uh, mm-hmm. dredge up gold left over from the gold rush. Um, and in so doing, we're also stirring up uh, mercury. They mm-hmm. they they travel together. So it's impossible really in these mercury impacted watersheds to not encounter mercury contaminated sediments. Well, why did that matter? And it has to do with what we learned about mercury fate and transport. And essentially the suction dredging was stirring that material up and atomizing it or flowering it, um, making it more susceptible to become methylated when it deposited. So once you know better, then you need to do better. And we couldn't just, uh, stay in that safe scientific box and say, we have this great study, we'll publish it and hope that somebody understands it someday. Instead, we took that, what we learned and went and got involved in the statewide conversation um, around suction dredge mining and its regulation and helped to inform how it needed to be regulated in the future. And that was just recent too, right? That they did that. That's right. So there's currently a moratorium on suction dredge mining, but it's not in any way banned with quotes in in the air. It's only um, on a moratorium until there is uh, legislation passed to permit it under the appropriate bodies or water quality related regulations. And until that's passed, then it can't continue as an activity. So California started that and then Oregon followed and right. Yes, that's very true. Hmm. Um, so it's funny because I, when I'm walking along the streams and I see people digging up rocks and making little holes, I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's so, you know, they're messing up the river. And then you, you go, you start listening to what you just said about, mm. um, Malakoff digging and this suction dredging. I was like, that, just, that's not, that has nothing, you know, there's almost little, so much little impact. I was there. literally just driving on 99 towards, towards, uh, you know, North Fork and I go over Butte Creek right on 99 yeah, and you look right down below you yep. guys just you know got they've been show. doing there for a long so time so there, there there was this Drives general sense there was this general sense by the tribes the Karuk tribe and by fishermen uh, and by rafters who encountered um, these section dredge miners that it wasn't good for the res- for the rivers and it wasn't good for the fish but it was very very difficult to prove that in any kind of scientific study mm-hmm. and so the um the lawsuits weren't going anywhere. In other words, once you added this new information about mercury fate and transport, it was like, wait, that's a class one hazardous waste. That's the Clean Water Act. That's has to cease and desist immediately, that wow. activity. Yeah. So it just had this teeth to it that all the other impacts to fish couldn't really bear out. Interesting. Yeah, every, I've, I've been told because I've brought it up before that I've seen guys, you know, with their dredging rigs like deep in. I think I was in like Yellow Creek one time and saw some, some, it was definitely like off grid stuff. And everybody's like, well, fish below it because they're, you know, they're knocking up all the bugs and <laughs> they're going to just be a, it's going to be like a hamburger feed down, down <laughs> below. But that makes me not want to do that. Can yeah. You-, you know, the dredgers would say, we, I had to testify on this topic. Um, Numerous times, actually, and the the dredging community would show up in force and say, you know, the fish love us and we love the fish. We love the rivers and the fish love us. See, they're all gathering right by my machine. They love the bugs that I'm stirring up. And that's kind of what I was getting to about this. Like, we need a population that can understand chemistry Mm -hmm. because you might see a bunch of fish there. Yes, they do love the fact that you're stirring up all those (laughs) bugs. But what's happening to the mercury that's being stirred up? Where is it going? Putting it right into the food chain. Yes. Can you um, can you give us a visualization of so just like a project that would go through, I guess, the hierarchy there all the way down to you and how that works at the Sierra Fund? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's such a good question. So we do our work really differently than I think most environmental groups that I've come across. We're not a membership-based organization. Um, We don't have uh, citizen scientists um, doing a bunch of um, data collection. And we don't just do whatever project we can get funded by whatever means are coming our way. So we very carefully select and scope out the problem before us. And we've done that around the impacts of the California gold rush, like I was talking about before. So you get things done. We get things done in a really meaningful and strategic way. And a huge part of that is forming these interdisciplinary working groups of advisors. And this is really where our partnerships come in. Um, 
we have these gatherings around the different topics associated with Mercury. We call them our technical advisory group, um, where these experts are willing to come in and spend the day to learn about the latest research that's going on, mm-hmm. but also to inform the um, the process and and have an open discussion about what research is still needed. So you have we have the scoping phase around what the problem is, right? And then we have this um, selecting pilot projects to inform those critical data gaps. And Malakoff Diggins was one of those pilot projects. We wanted to understand what's going on with abandoned mines. What are the problems with them? Malakoff Diggins was one of our pilot projects. So it was Combi Reservoir. That's a reservoir where we have this um, project with the Nevada Irrigation District to remove sediment and treat it um, by getting the gold and mercury out of it and restore the reservoir storage space. So those were two pilot projects that greatly informed our understanding on abandoned mines. And Mm -hmm. then we try and create some sort of regional policy, sorry, regional plan that has policy implications associated with it. So right now we have our headwater mercury source reduction strategy, and then we have meaningful policy implications like what are the best management practices that should be employed when doing river restoration in the lower Yuba, which is all hydraulic mining debris? Right. So what do we learn about mercury fate and transport that we now need to translate into these um, active areas of um, management or research yeah. so that we know better, we do better? So those are the kind of the steps. Scope the pro- problem well, yeah. um, inform it with a working group of advisors. Don't pretend to know everything. Create an academic environment where you get people to talk to you about what you th- are thinking and better inform it. Select meaningful pi- pilot projects that cr- that fill these critical data gaps and then implement some sort of um, policy or regulatory improvement, uh, a protocol approach or some sort as part of a regional strategy so that uh, you can keep building on what you've learned. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of our um, uh, our arc, basically, of how projects go through the mill at the right. Sierra Fund and what we try and do with each one. And our mining one is the farthest along, but we also have a forestry-related forestry related program in, mm-hmm. in our ecosystem resiliency work. Um, and we also have um, a meadows-related one, which I haven't really talked about too much. Um, and so you're then, talking about forest fires yeah, and then cattle grazing. Correct. Right? There's the two... Yeah, absolutely. Two really important issues for the Sierra Nevada. And how do you scope those in a meaningful way? Mm-hmm. And I would say we're talk kind about that. A yeah, little bit. educate me because I don't I'm not making the connection. Sure. I can do that a little bit uh, better around meadows. Maybe um, meadows are really meaningful topographic occurrences throughout our headwaters, right? And essentially what they do, in addition to providing amazing habitat for fish and birds and amphibians, is they also hold water. They're like little sponges sitting Mm -hmm. on the hillside. Mm -hmm. And they hold water higher longer. And that matters for everything that depends on that water. So in a way, there are natural reservoirs and they're how our a big part of how our headwater hydrology works. So that's a functioning wetland meadow. When you have um, overgrazing, I don't mean to say any and all grazing, I mean overgrazing, you have this impact on meadows, it can dewater them. So essentially, if you have too many animals, um, cows on the landscape, too much compaction of that sponge, your stream will no longer wet up and fill the whole sponge and fill the whole meadow. Instead, your stream will cut through the meadow, creating a beeline from the top of the meadow to the bottom and incising incision into the meadow, creating these kinds of cliff-like walls that line the stream bed. You see this Mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. That's a dewatering process of the meadow because once you've incised the creek down to a lower level, that's also where the groundwater table lives. And so it will dewater to that surface water expression, the creek, and the water will go out. So now you went from a wet functioning meadow to a dry landscape with sagebrush. And now you can see this all over our headwaters where this has happened. Interesting. And this process can be reversed through meadow restoration techniques. Uh, So what do they do just like at a high level? They get really deep golf shoes, you know, with spikes and they get out there and start. At a really high level, they plug (laughs) up the stream. If you can plug up the stream and let that water back up behind it, everything everything will come back. Um, But you have to do that in a pretty informed way so you don't make something else worse. Um, So it's an engineered project. Um, And we're involved in one of those at Clover Valley, which is a 3,000 acre cattle ranch that has been ranched for the last 150 years. How do you determine if there's too many cattle? 
you know, you look at the effects that the cattle are having on the landscape. Mm-hmm. So um, the 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 grazing management plans that are good and in in balance with the system have the animals removed once the grass is at a certain height. So there's a certain right. remaining biomass left on the landscape, Ooh. and that's how you measure whether or not you've left the cattle on too long or not long enough. The, the cool part about this project is it's a win-win. Yeah. What do ranchers want? They want more to cattle. to take their cattle in the yeah, summertime. Or in the they spring. want their cattle to have all the food that they need yeah. and to be able to be on these landscapes for the appropriate amount of time. If you do this right, they, their land will produce cattle for so much longer. So this has actually been a process that the ranching community has gotten really behind saying, yeah, we want to restore meadows. We see the value in that. Mm-hmm. That's how our, you mm-hmm. know, that's how our ranch operates. Tell us how we can do this differently mm-hmm. if it's having this impact or not. So will they will they carve out certain acreage just to let it kind of lay fallow for a year or two also? Yeah, absolutely. So rotational grazing okay, is so a key they, part. Of, they have crop rotation, but yep. they also have rotational grazing. Yes, okay, cool. yes, absolutely. So all of that's combined. So that's the beginning of our Meadows work, and we're involved in a really exciting, it's called Sierra Meadows Partnership um, Group that has a strategy for the, for the region. Um, cool. And it's identified where all the meadows are and that they all need restoring. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's great Love work. It. Um, and then the other one you mentioned was forestry. Forestry. So what's changed here is that not only have catastrophic wildfires affected our communities in ways that we never could have predicted, um, but the lack of wildfires. Yeah, we're talking about here? well, no, I, I you can go there, but what I was going to go to <laughs> is the data where I'm safe and comfortable. Um, <laughs> we have this new data for the um, Tahoe National Forest. It's called LIDAR. It's basically a really good three-dimensional topographic image. And from that, you can see all of these different features on the landscape, inclu- including stand age and density, um, as well as hydraulic mine pits. And so areas where there are these hydraulic mine sites or mine-impacted lands that are really erosive, forest thinning and fuels treatment in and around those areas can be done with in concert with mine remediation. So that's one of our newer projects with Tahoe National Forest right now that I'm pretty excited about. And that's exploring best management practices for forest fuels thinning in mercury impacted watersheds, if you will, or in sites that have been heavily impacted by the So is rush. the LIDAR, is it coming off of satellite or do they do overflights or... Yeah, it's satellite imagery. Okay. Yeah, and they fly over and they collect that data. Actually, Crazy. it's it's fly over, so it's airplanes okay. that fly over with really high resolution. Okay. My bad. So I have a two part question. Uh, what projects are you most excited about right now that you're working on, and then what which one have you been most excited as far as the data and change that's come out of your work? So um, I'm definitely excited about our Clover Valley work. I love being up at high elevation in these meadows. And mm-hmm. I, I love the um, aspect that meadows have such amazing habitat for these trout fisheries, as well as such an important water storage and water quality feature in our landscape. Yeah. And I just love being there. Like put me in a meadow and I feel pretty happy. The work that I'm really um, excited about right now has to do more with the um, Yuba River watershed. Mm-hmm. And identifying um, volitional fish passage opportunities for that watershed. So that's a big topic right now because they're talking about a study over on the Shasta Dam area using those headwaters as potential spawning grounds. Are you familiar with? A little bit, yeah. yeah. So same thing's going on for the Yuba area. Yeah, and have been for a long time. I mean, as part of different FERC relicensing processes. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel like I'm just now engaging in a meaningful way um, through the Yuba Goals and Objectives Group. Mm-hmm. And and that's really looking at whether or not, so pretending fish could get over Inglebright, do they have adequate habitat in those Yuba River um, right. branches? Do they have adequate holding habitat, spawning habitat? Um, and I think overwhelmingly, I see I feel really optimistic when I'm looking at those data. Yeah. And previous studies conducted have have made it look like the rivers are too hot fish will die up here right. that was my don't, first thing. don't bring them Second back was how steep it is up there yeah and one of the reasons it's so steep is that it's incised it's cut into that bank because of the hydraulic mining and how much was pushed down that so watershed they wow. did the hydraulic mining even above inglebright yes oh, the most hydraulic mining no the most hydraulic mining in the world 
um, in, in California has happened above Inglebright in the Yuba River and Bear River systems. I mean, obviously oh. the bear isn't above Inglebright, but that material has come down and it's either now displayed across the Yuba gold fields in the mm-hmm. lower Yuba, or it's trapped behind Inglebright, or it's still moving down. Hmm. So there was this time period in history where hydraulic mining was banned uh, because it was ruining the farms in Marysville. And um, so a, a cease and desist order, if you will, on hydraulic mining. And then there was the Sawyer decision that came. Sorry, that was the Sawyer decision. And then the Caminetti Act came in 1893 that said, okay, all right, you can resume your hydraulic mining if you hold back the hydraulic mining debris. If you hold it like up there, don't let it come down here and ruin the farm. So that's when it kicked. It was so like in the Engel, 50s. Inglebright was born. Inglebright was born. It was in the 50s. That's when they started. It was actually 1893. Was when when, it, re- when the Caminetti Act came, and what happened was a whole bunch of small debris control dams were built oh. out of brush, out of out of uh, trees, log crib dams, and out of cement. So Inglebright was a consolidation of all these. Inglebright was like Inglebright was like one of the biggest ones they created. Okay, um, for that to resume, so was Lake Clementine on the American River. They're both hydraulic, they're both debris control dams so that hydraulic mining could resume. But what I'm trying to get at is that there's these little known small debris control dams scattered throughout these upper watersheds mm-hmm. and their tributaries that mm-hmm. continue to block longitudinal fish passage for resident trout. And those sites mm-hmm. are also holding back hydraulic mining debris, and they're of unknown structural stability. There are cement dams in the middle of nowhere not being inspected by anyone ever. Yeah, that was my next question. Are they monetizing these in any way? It doesn't sound like they are. I can tell you that they were licensed by the California Debris Commission, which later became the Army Corps of Engineers. It's easy to put them in, a lot more work to get them out. But you can't just blow them them apart because there's high concentration of mercury. you got to figure out what the F to do with that before you can even pull them out. (laughs) It's a little complicated, but if we can look at those mountains and say, let's go mine the gold out of them, we can look at them and say, let's restore this system. We got to the moon for Christ's sake. I mean, what what do we need? Jobs. Where do we need them? Sierra Nevada. I thought it was coal. We can do it. <laughs> Not coal? <laughs> no, this is this is hydraulic mining restoration country. There, there's so many jobs in green energy and stuff like this that could be happening. Absolutely. Yeah, it just blows my mind. They, uh, they already have it. The infrastructure somewhat built into that Shasta Dam where they can actually lift fish up and over the dam, right? And put adults fish into it. And then they go up into their creeks and spawn. And then, you know, the fry come back down. That And that's the kind of the issue they're, they're talking about. How do they... How do they yeah. get them down the river? This is you know? a really important point. Um, we're trying to engineer ourselves out of the uh, um, fish passage problem on the Yuba as well. And in fact, a two-way trap and haul system has been proposed. Explain. It's, yeah, explain it's, that. It's two-way because not only do you trap the adults that have arrived at Inglebright mm-hmm. ready to spawn, and you truck them all the way up to the beautiful spawning habitat in um, Downeyville, mm-hmm. North Yuba, and release them. You also have to trap all of the babies magically. Right. Babies come get in the truck, right. right? It's very hard to do well, I think. Then you're transporting those babies back down and depositing them back into the lower Yuba. Mm-hmm. This is a real, and there's a great critique of this and the potential problems done by Peter Moyle and one of his students because it turns out putting fish in trucks can really affect their otoliths and their ability to salmon find more, anything salmon ever more again. Salmon than anything, yeah. The salmon, what's a, what's that's an otolith? It's their ear bone. Ear. Their eardrum bone yeah. that affects everything about how they but find places. Yeah, it's kind of like a homing pigeon. Has, Correct. They right. figured that out a long time ago. That's why they transported trout all over the world instead of right. salmon. So the success stories for trap and haul that they like to cite, people who are proponents of this project, are one-way trap and haul like on the Columbia River. They only do one of those life stages. They bring the babies back down over the 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 waterway that would yeah. that would destroy so them. You don't have to worry about any other life stages after the first one. So we have a really impacted system and a two way trap and haul, which has been proposed in order to keep the um, spring run Chinook genetically separated from the fall run, which is what the fisheries biologists are telling us we might already be too late for. Why? They, because they're arriving there and they're um, they're mixing with the right. fall run. So right. genetic diversity is being lost Sounds in that like we, way. We need to try and get Peter Moyle on to talk trap and haul with us because it's there's, you know, similar proposal going on with with uh, Keswick and yep, now Chester, here. Yeah. You know, when he, it was his student who wrote that paper 
who was also very articulate. So if you can't get him, get that student. I can look up his name later. But yeah, this is an important aspect. So it is all important, and I'm picking up what you're putting down, but why should anglers care about what you guys do at the Sierra Fund? (laughs) Uh, Maybe in two, two sentences. (laughs) <laughs> I think I think anglers obviously anglers is a really large community and means many different things to many different people yeah. but overall I would say that people who are catching fish in order to eat it are right. are being exposed to high levels of methylmercury and may not know it or right. may not be able to make um the distinction on, on what are the healthier choices so in, in my mind, if you're an angler who loves to eat what you catch and show up there with a cooler to fill up to, mm-hmm. you know, be economical and eat what you catch, mm-hmm. those are the anglers who, I, and especially if they're feeding it to their families that have young children in them, those are the anglers who I, I really hope care about this issue uh, because it affects their health and their family's health. And as a mom, in the gold country, you know, that's the message I want to mm-hmm. get out. Um, have your kids get excited about catching and eating trout and don't eat the bass. It's the simplest <laughs> message trout. I can give you. When I, when I think trout. about all this, yes. I'm trying to, I think about my childhood. I think about all the different fish I've eat, eaten and all the different places I fish. And, and I don't, I don't eat trout very often, but when I do, I eat them out of Eagle Lake because they're amazing. And everybody knows they're just great fish to eat. Sounds like we should have more Eagle Lake, um, you know, places to raise all these these fish to eat and kind of let everything else clean itself out. You, you know, you know, you're. I don't know if am I talking on, out of my ass. No, you're on to something. In <laughs> fact, the tribes that we have worked with have really wanted the regulators to say not where we shouldn't eat, but please tell us where we can right. eat fish from. Right, and that's the message that they want to hear. Is that data available? Yeah, it's called the Clean Lake Study. It was done by the um, Bioaccumulation Oversight Group by SFEI, San Francisco Estuary Institute. And it does try and identify the um, clean lakes where people can eat what they catch. Is this in California only or is it nationwide? No, this is a California effort largely driven by this request to please tell us where we can go. I know why you like the meadows so much. You compared them to a sponge. You're like a sponge. You remember everything, all this stuff. <laughs> it's wish, impressive. Thank you. I wish that was true. <laughs> I, I can't even remember how I got here. I took a left out of my house. Okay. I'll figure it out. GPS. Um, this is all very awesome information. And thank you so much for coming down and talking with us. Um, what else do you want want to talk about well i think that your questions here about like what would listeners if they're interested in this how would they have a role like mine or something like that was a really good question we didn't quite get to and Mm -hmm. what i would say that if you're passionate about environmental issues and you're passionate about the science that goes into making informed decisions then look at nonprofit science as a way to have a, a meaningful career i think um it's not very many people that get their PhD and also want to work right. for a nonprofit. Right. And we frankly need more people who want to do that in all different areas of interest. Yeah, I think there's a stigma attached to it, though. You know, like people, you, you've, you, a lot of, I think this is 50s baggage, 1950s baggage, but you're kind of like programmed to go to college and like be super successful, right? But there's, nowadays there's there's so many different avenues to be successful and sex success isn't measured just by you know being able to get on a plane and go to vegas with 20 of your friends it's really about like just having a huge impact for in your one area you know and if enough people do that then i think that's how you affect change right i agree and i'm seeing that though also within after doing some of these episodes and getting to know more people there's whether it's left or right whether you make money or not there everybody it seems like are trying to get involved because they, yeah. they look at this resource and they and what they love and they're yeah. like i want to protect it and i want my kids to be able to enjoy yeah. it when they're when they're older and, and one thing also is like you know we every everyone that we've talked to that's you know in a similar area of, like you like you are they all come from a really good place you know just they want they do want to make a change and there's it's there's almost like this there's this altruism there almost right um i i still think that the angling community as a whole 
looks at anyone on the management side or the 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 science side of of the equation as as kind of a more of an adversarial kind of a relationship and that's not the case these are people are trying to you know do good so that you know it floats everyone's boat it's it's not just about you know being a gearhead out there and you know oh i'm they're going to take you know, 20, 30 minutes out of my day because I got to answer an effing survey question. (laughs) Don't look at it that way. I'm glad we got to this point. I wanted to tell you a little bit about how I got here. Um, I grew up on the McKenzie River in Oregon and um, fishing on that river. And then I later learned about river guiding and I was a guide all over Oregon. And I absolutely loved sitting on the back of the raft. Basically anything that brought me to the river, whether I was fishing and not catching fish or taking people down one of the wonderful rivers, I was happy. I also loved science, but I had no idea that the two would come together. And I can literally tell you that it was sitting on the back of a raft, you know, looking down on my paddle going, I could study this. (laughs) That changed my world. Work on what you're passionate about and it will never feel like work work to protect this these rivers this system it's uh it's really a pleasure and a duty every day that i feel like i wake up to and and that's That's what i that's what i aspire towards yeah and you know some of the guides we have on that's that's what they do they they've figured that out you know they've cracked that mental nut and a lot of people are in jobs that they hate but um there's a way out so tell us, um, before you go, what are some of your favorite places to go raft? Yeah. Uh, the um, maybe in Oregon. The Umpqua River in I Oregon Umpqua, yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, the McKenzie River, obviously, is near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. And I love every rock on that river. Uh, rocks are your friends. <laughs> and um, I, I would say the Deschutes. My kids yeah. love it when we're on the Deschutes River. So those are, those are the rivers Do your kids of my fish? heart. My kids do fish, yes, um, and they like it. Cool. Do they fly fish? Um, yes. When we're in Oregon, they fly fish. Oh, very when cool. we're in California, they they fish off the docks and they they torture the bluegills. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, if um, your family wants to ever come down and do like a fly fishing class or something like that, um, we should do that. It'd be fun. That would rock their world. That would be wonderful. Okay. Thank well, you. well, before we wrap, there's some we uh, we want to get through the promo, so. Um, how can we, how can our listeners contact you in the Sierra fund or connect with you in the Sierra? Fund? Yeah, we have a wonderful website, um, that has all our contact information at sierrafund.org. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, um, and people can connect through that as well. Uh, we hold a conference every other year and that is called reclaiming the Sierra. So you can look for that. And that's when we bring together experts on all of these different topics and more than just having them present on their favorite pet project. We really try and incentivize these meaningful conversations that lead to these aha moments. Um, it is key to have, um, have people who are experts in all 360 degrees of a problem come together, mm-hmm. people who don't even speak the same language. I mean, I am working with the mining industry to figure out my problems. I am working with the ranching industry to figure out my problems. If I were only work in one community, I would miss yeah. those amazing opportunities. And and I think you, that's a, a critical point, right? You're, if you're trying to get a lot of people from disparate backgrounds to work together, you have to build empathy you know, and the way to do that is get people in the same room and kind of start to talk. Yeah, we have so because much. It common all comes ground. from a place of empathy, and then it goes. So, just that. so you guys know, May eighth and 9th at CSU Sacramento is when the next um, reclaiming the Sierra. That, yeah, that right? was that's twenty sixteen. I'm sorry, uh, those are our dates when we hey, did it last. Mar- hey, Connor, Marty, Marty, that up. Take Marty that out, McFly, Connor. I think you put it in the wrong. <laughs> but we will set code. we will set dates soon, and yeah. it'll okay. those dates will be in the future. Dang it! Dang it. <laughs> well, so speaking of events, um, we're gonna. I'm just gonna kind of transition over the promos for Barbless. Um, so we have an email list that we started uh, just recently. It's gonna come out once a month, and it's the newsletter. Be- yeah, what did I say? An email list. Oh, saying okay. The email list is your your way to get to the newsletter. <laughs> uh, so we have a new. Uh, a it's newsletter. really good too. I a like it a lot. Basically, the newsletter is clean. It's nice. Yeah, it recaps the previous month. You're going to learn about um, events like reclaiming the Sierra. Every two years, it comes up. You'll see stuff like that on there. Uh, we're going to pull a leader of the month off the uh, leader website. 
leaders.barbless.co is that leader's website. The email list, you want to sign up for that email list, uh, go to the, the our website, podcast.barbless.co. At the bottom of that page, there's a form there. You fill it out, boom. Uh, we have software that's going to be launching pretty soon, guys, So and girls. If you guys want to uh, sign up for our beta, you can get early access to that. That's pod, podcast.barbless.co forward slash beta. Um, we have the guide program. That's The guide program is what makes those uh, fishing reports for all, all you guys. Uh, podcast.barlesslightco. dot forward slash guides. If you want to sign up for that, almost through this, it's a lot of stuff. Uh, hey Nick, why don't you do the last three? Well, follow us at barless.co on Instagram or NorCal Fly Guy for me and Chad Alderson for Chadley or Utrin, son of Utrin. Here we go. Every episode, <laughs> and, then our, and then our Facebook page. We have a Barless Podcast Facebook page. Um, we've been putting a lot of cool, awesome linking articles uh, with fish bio and. Um, a lot of other industries out there and then um, our Facebook group too if you want to get into some more in-depth discussion on our about our podcast or have ideas for us you can uh, and you can just search there. search for the barbless podcast there that's it thank you so much Carrie for coming on My thanks pleasure. a lot Carrie. It's it's awesome. a lot and sitting through that I learned a lot <laughs> thanks guys I learned a lot cue music peace out <laughs> This podcast would not be possible without support from our sponsors, FishBio and Amped.Build. FishBio is a consulting firm that offers a fresh approach to fishery science. They specialize in fish research, monitoring, and conservation with innovative uses of technology and communication. From their offices in Chico, Oakdale, and Santa Cruz, California, to Vientiane, Laos, FishBio is committed to solving natural resource challenges locally and globally. Learn more at www.fishbio.com. And Amp.Build. Amp is a software design and engineering shop located in Chico, California. Amp creates beautiful apps for mobile and desktop devices, wearables, and the Internet of Things. Amp develops native, web, and hybrid apps on a variety of platforms. Chad, who co-hosts this podcast, is the agency's founder. Learn more at www.amp.build.